Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. For today's episode, I was joined by three other guests who are also employed by AIBS. Uh, they're Steve Gallo, Joanne Sullivan, and Dejoy Croslin. I'll let them introduce themselves in a moment and also tell you a little bit about what they do at AIBS. Um, but they were here to talk about their recently published article in Bioscience, and it's uh, called Scientists from Minority Serving Institutions and Their Participation in Grant Peer Review, which provides us a way to look at you know some of the inequities that are present in the way that science is funded. And we also talked a little bit about, you know, what kind of interventions might be best able to address those inequities. Uh, anyway, it was a great conversation. And so with no further ado, let's go straight to the interview. All right. Thank you all very much for joining me today. Thanks, thank James. You, James. Thank you, James. Okay. If we could get started just so people can put names to voices, um, if each of you could just give a, a quick introduction of yourselves and, you know, what you do at AIBS. Uh, hi, I'm uh, uh, Steve Gallo. I'm the uh, chief scientist at uh, AIBS in the Scientific Peer Advisory and Review Services Division. And uh, one of the things that uh, um, I focus on in, in AIBS is, is uh, the science of peer review, kind of looking at uh, the process of peer review and uh, how can we improve it and, and make it better and um, those kinds of things. So. Hi, James. I'm Joanne Sullivan. I'm a program manager in the SPARS division at AIBS. And I've been with AIBS for almost 18 years. And I just do peer review. I've started off as a project associate and now worked my way up to program manager. Hi, James. I am Dejoy Croslin, a senior scientist and program manager in the Scientific Peer Advisory and Review Services Department, as Steve said, uh, at AIBS. Um, I also help with our peer review services and have recently taken on the role of overseeing the diversity initiatives at AIBS and serve as the chair of the AIBS Board of Directors Diversity Committee. Okay, great. And thanks again for being here. Um, so I think just to get us started, I'm going to ask a question that is extremely unfair. And I, I tend to ask it every podcast, which is, could you please sum up, you know, the last decades of your entire career uh, by giving me a summary of the field that you work in? Uh, in this case, we're talking about grant review. Um, and I'm just, you know, hoping we could give our listeners just a little bit of an introduction to that general field, um, you know, for those who are a little bit less familiar with the way that science gets funded. I think maybe I'll take a stab at that if that's... Uh, so for most funding agencies, uh, uh, scientists uh, who are conducting research will submit research proposals to that agency <clears throat> in response to uh, like a call for submissions. And uh, those are with, you know, different mechanisms and different timelines and budgets, but there, there usually is some sort of call for, for people to submit proposals. And uh, they collect them and then uh, they start a, a grant peer review process, which is... Uh, um, a process whereby they, they invite scientists to participate in um, kind of a decision-making process, looking at these proposals that have been submitted and deciding uh, which ones have the highest uh, scientific merit. Um, and uh, these often the groups of recruited scientists uh, have uh, very specific expertise relevant to the uh, areas that uh, uh, of science that have been submitted. And uh, they're trying to compare all these individual uh, research proposals to kind of the gold standard of excellence. And they use several criteria using, you know, things like uh, research methodology and, and potential for impact and things like that. Um, and often they review these proposals and then they meet somewhere either virtually or uh, on site uh, to kind of discuss these. And uh, ultimately the output of those uh, uh, panels, review panels, is often um, uh, kind of feedback 
that goes back to the applicant and to the uh, science administrator to help them make funding decisions, as well as kind of a score. And the score kind of gives a sense of um, how on a, on a certain scale, how uh, what's the um, merit of that particular proposal. Uh, it should be noted, though, that um, agencies usually have um, uh, these scientific administrators uh, usually invite scientists uh, to participate um, and often there's a requirement uh, uh, for uh, previous funding in order to uh, uh, be recruited on a panel. So an unspoken or spoken requirement. Um, so anyway, then the outputs of these feedback go back to a, a kind of the funding agency for them to make final uh, decisions about which research they'd like to fund and which uh, they would not. And um, uh, yeah, that's kind of in, in a nutshell. I hope that covers everything. Okay, I think that gives us a great overview. Um, and I, I'm wondering now then, you know, since we'll be talking today about the people who, you know, serve on those panels and who, who perform that review, um, what's the what's the relevance either to a scientific career or to the broader enterprise, you know, of, of being one of those people who's, you know, um, reviewing those proposals? Um, the importance of that is... <clears throat> to be at the table to understand the process and to see on the back end as a scientist what happens when you actually um, review an application, what the peer review process is, and how this work that you do on the front end to write a grant, how that's received by those that make decisions about whether or not you are going to be funded. And so that to us is kind of the important part or the impetus for the work that we decided to start doing in the realm of the barriers to peer review. Okay, that makes sense. So it's a, it's a case in which, you know, if you're not if you're not at the table, you're not a participant in the process, it becomes a little harder to become the person who ultimately gets the funding and, you know, is able to, you know, have a successful scientific career. Yeah. That's our, I think that's our thought process. And I, I mean, I think Steve would probably agree. It's, it's very akin to um, parents and children, right? Like you go into the room and you make a decision about what the children are going to do, and they might push back at you based on the decision that you've made. But when you make them a part of that decision and they understand why you made the decision and, and what the ultimate consequences are as a result, they're more akin to at least listening <laughs> to what you have to say. And so I think it's, it's very similar to that. If you don't know what goes on in the process for selecting funding, how can you put together a proposal that adheres to the criteria um, that is used to actually decide the funding? I probably said that in a very roundabout way, but no. <laughs> feel free to jump in. Yeah, if I could add something, yeah, I think, you know, maybe um, uh, one way to think about it is, you know, I mean, uh, as in part of a scientist career, uh, funding is, is very important. It's important not only to fund the research that they're doing, but also uh, for, you know, career advancement and uh, faculty appointments and all those kinds of things. Uh, even impacts uh, the amount of productivity you're able to uh, 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 create. So, um, but competition is extremely high uh, all across science and uh, particularly funding agencies like uh, the NIH, where uh, it's, uh, I think, a couple of years ago, they said that um, the average age of your first R01 grant is something like 42. So it's, it's very tough competition. And uh, often uh, you have to submit several proposals before you actually get one funded. 
so there's there's a high competition and and um, so people are looking also as a way to glimpse how to how to write a grant, but also how, what are reviewers looking for in grants. And so uh, uh, taking part in that process is also helpful um, from that perspective. Um, but uh, one of the issues that I think uh, we're facing is that um, the patterns in funding are showing that the allocation of, of, uh, of research funds to, for instance, white scientists versus black scientists is not uh, equal. And so um, there's some suggestion that there's a, a implicit bias that may be in the peer review process that be contributing to this. And so, um, and unfortunately, these differences, a lot of the reports that we've seen uh, are not only significant, but also persistent. Uh, there was a report in 2011 uh, highlighting this in science uh, by Donna Ginther. And 10 years later, she produced another study showing basically the same thing and, and the difference between, for instance, black and white scientists had not changed at all. So uh, after a decade of actively trying to do something about it, uh, nothing really was effective. Um, so if implicit bias is a contributor to this research funding um, uh, discrepancy, then um, maybe a potential intervention is to improve uh, diversity of, of review panels in order to kind of, um, like DeJoy said, if you, if you have uh, uh, people from different perspectives on those panels, they may be more likely to understand uh, where uh, those scientists are coming from, um, why those topics are so important. Um, and so uh, that might be a potential uh, pathway towards uh, reducing this gap. Um, but as I stated uh, above, often previous success with grant funding is a requirement for review participation. So we've kind of set up a feedback loop. And if you look at NIH panel diversity right now, uh, it's not very um, diverse. <laughs> at least, for instance, I mean, there's, there's very low levels of, for instance, African-American scientists on review panels, at least uh, based on data that's just recently been um, uh, put out there by, by groups like the NIH. So, um, and in addition to this, uh, not only does this happen kind of at the individual level, but also at the institutional level too. Um, so if you look at traditional white institutions versus uh, minority serving institutions, there's big gaps there in terms of funding um, levels. And in one study in 2014, uh, there was uh, a total of like a, a four uh, traditionally white institutes uh, the total funding from those four institutes was roughly similar to um, all of the historically black colleges and universities, at least all the four-year ones. Uh, so that's that's a that's a pretty telling statistic, I think. Um, so we don't really know much about um, representation of um, minority-serving institution uh, scientists from minority-serving institutions um, and the representation on peer review panels. Um, so that's that's something that uh, I think we'd like to take a look at, and then and also, I mean, maybe uh, uh, you guys can chime in on this. But I think also uh, these uh, minority-serving institutions are are kind of islands of of high levels of diversity, um, and they're they're important in the research ecosystem, um, and yeah. So I think that's that's one of the reasons why we're interested in that. Yeah, and I, I would piggyback on that in some some kind of conversations that we've had internally at AIBS. Um, we really look at 
specific in minority serving institutions, specifically the historically black colleges and universities, and how large of a role HBCUs play in in the STEM kind of pipeline. Um, and I, I I think we just have to reiterate that that HBCUs represent I think it's maybe like three three to four percent of the nation's kind of population of higher education institutions. But as Steve mentioned, they have like relatively small endowments, um, lower resources, but have consistently over the last probably 20 years remained among the nation's top producers, probably the best way to say it, of um, African-Americans who go on to have careers in STEM. And if I can remember correctly, I think a, a couple of weeks ago, I read a, an article, I think it was about 2010 or 2012, that said that HBCUs put out more than one third of African-American PhDs. If you start to think about how many of the African-American PhDs today have trained or received an undergraduate degree um, at an HBCU. So that's a pretty big place. And then when you think about the HBCUs, the 20 or so HBCUs with PhD programs, they put out about 10 to 12% of African-American PhDs. So this environment that HBCUs have with um, that in their considered minority serving institutions in which underrepresented minorities can come to and grow what does that environment look like when we correlate that to the amount of funding that this environment can get to train underrepresented minority students to go out and be successful at a career science? So I think it's just this loop of information that we keep kind of digging ourselves into that's very interesting that starts at least with one type of survey and one set of research, which is what we started here. Okay, so putting it all together, you know, we know that Funding is obviously very important, and we know that getting a seat at the table uh, of the funding process by being a participant in grant review is also important. Um, and we know that you know uh, minority-serving institutions themselves are very important and a source of the diversity that we're trying to uh, you know find and, and build within science. Um, so you know that kind of gives us a lens of looking at then the participation of you know scientists at minority-serving institutions in the grant review process. And that kind of gives you a lens into, um, you know, understanding where, you know, these inequities might flow from. Uh, do I have that basically right? Yeah, uh, I think, uh, so we, to get it, to give it a little context, um, we had recently uh, in the last couple of years, uh, uh, had a, created and conducted a survey of, uh, of scientists, largely from traditionally white institutes about their levels of participation in peer review and their motivations and all these kinds of things. Uh, and that was very interesting. Uh, one of the first works to do that, but, uh, but our population sample population was, was, uh, pretty limited, uh, was largely white, largely male and, um, and mostly from traditionally white institutes. So, um, one of our motivations was to get uh, a sense of well, well, there is data out there about like, for instance, uh, racial data about representation on NIH review panels. Uh, there's not a lot of uh, information about levels of participation of, um, for instance, minority serving institutions, uh, scientists from minority serving institutions. So, um, so that was one of our motivations was to kind of, uh, as a, corollary to our previous work to, to look and see, well, uh, are the levels of participation from 
largely traditionally white institutions similar to those from minority serving institutions um, because there's clear large discrepancies in funding. Uh, and then the other is really to get a sense of if there's not, or if there, if there are differences, um, which we would suspect there are, uh, we would like to get a sense of what the potential barriers are uh, for those scientists to participate and uh, what their motivations are. And um, yeah, to see, to contrast those against some of the um, uh, data that we've collected from traditionally white institutes. So then how do you do it? Um, you know, how do you, how do you gather that data? What goes into, you know, uh, making those sorts of, you know, analyses? How do you figure it out? Um, you know, who's participating in which panels and um, from which institutes, et cetera? Yeah. Uh, so we, uh, <laughs> well, what we did is we, we, we created a survey, um, which we based in part on our previous work. Uh, and we did that on purpose so that we could, uh, uh, keep some of the questions consistent between our previous survey and this one, so we could directly compare. Um, and uh, we then, um, and this is something that uh, particularly me and, and uh, Joanne worked on, is, is uh, to um, identify lists of uh, minority serving institutions, specifically um, historically black colleges and universities, um, tribal colleges and universities, and, and also Hispanic serving institutions. Um, so we found some uh, links uh, related to that with lists. And then um, uh, we basically went through those and, and made sure we identified uh, four-year colleges that had likelihood of having uh, uh, actual, um, you know, had the likelihood of, of their scientists submitting grant applications. So they'd be, um, you know, invested in this process. And then um, we looked uh, through, largely through uh, those individual university websites to uh, gather uh, information about um, potential respondents. Um, I don't know, uh, Joanne, if you wanted to say anything about that in particular. Yeah, so I just utilized the list that Steve gave me, and then I just kind of explored each, I opened up each university's website and then kind of looked for anything that had to do with science. So anything ranging from psychology to biology to chemistry, any scientists that I could find, and I just added them to the survey. So um, I didn't really delve in. Sometimes I would delve into how, like if I, I looked up their funding, but mainly I was just looking for just any scientists in general at that university, and then we just they were given the survey. Right, although we, we focused mostly on biology, right? I mean, yeah, was... um, but I did include some chemistry right. just because you know some of our proposals do have a chemistry kind of base, but it was mostly biology, yeah. Okay, so you've gathered you know, um, uh, this list of people. How many people are you then sending the survey to? So we, we targeted, uh, I think, 86 HBCUs, 21 tribal colleges, uh, and 156 Hispanics serving institutions. And we, uh, we extracted from those websites, what was it, Joanne, roughly five, 4,000? I think it was around 4,000, give or take. That's a lot of research. And then um, what, what kind of response rate did you get when you um, sent the survey out? Yeah, well, it was a little lower than we would have liked. <laughs> uh, survey research is, is hard, especially these days. Uh, um, the response rates are, are lower than we were hoping for. But uh, uh, there were high enough that we, we got a big enough sample, uh, a couple hundred, 
to uh, to be useful and interesting to us. So uh, there are some limitations to our study, but um, in in that respect, uh, but I think it's certainly a good spot and it's a, a good start and it's a good spotlight on um, uh, where we could go from here. And what kinds of things uh, did you ask the survey respondents? Right. So uh, one of the big things that we wanted to know was uh, the levels of participation. Um, and so we, again, we asked those questions in a way that was identical to our previous research. That way we could uh, kind of compare the, the questions or the, the, the answers. And um, we also looked at um, the motivations of people to participate in grant review and um, as well as uh, uh, potential barriers that prevent people from participating. Uh, and in addition to all that, we also asked about uh, grant submission. And the, part of the reason we asked about that was uh, uh, most people are, are not very interested in grant review if they're not actually submitting any grants. So we wanted to really make sure that our population um, were scientists who were actively submitting grants and, and were interested in, in that whole process. Okay, great. And what kinds of things did you find? You know, I, I, was, I pulled out the headline number for, um, you know, the press release, which was that, you know, you have only 45% um, of respondents um, from minority serving institutions who, who reported participating um, versus, you know, 76% of scientists from traditionally white institutions um, who participated in grant review. Uh, that seems striking. Was that, was that a finding surprising to you or was it in line with what you would have thought from, you know, the funding discrepancies? Yeah, it wasn't surprising. It was probably what we expected, but uh, it was it was a bigger. I was not sure, like I say, given the the size of our sample, whether we would really see that pronounced of a of a difference. But uh, there's clearly a big uh, difference there. And what's really interesting is that um, if you look at um, the uh, fairly low, I think it's like you said, forty five percent respondents that reported participating in a grant review, uh, but it's much more like uh, 80 or 90% that actually uh, were interested. So uh, there's there's clearly a lot of interest there. They're just, um, uh, you know, uh, not participating. So then when we asked uh, specifically why, um, you know, what are some of the barriers? The number one barrier that uh, uh, our respondents came back with is not being invited. <laughs> so uh, that's that's pretty telling, I think, uh, that simply the um, invitations have not been extended to uh, a lot of scientists from minority serving institutions, which is why they're participating less. But, uh, but if you look at motivations, uh, uh, scientists from minority serving institutions are very highly motivated. And in fact, they have some different motivations um, from uh, scientists that responded to our survey from traditionally white institutes. And specifically, I mean that uh, uh, there was a lot of, there was a high motivation to give back to the uh, community, just like uh, um, uh, scientists from our previous survey. But uh, there were also uh, a, quite a lot of interest in terms of uh, improving networks and uh, uh, career advancements uh, and uh, improving grantsmanship. Those were all uh, motivations that were much higher um, in this sample compared to our previous one. And that makes sense if, if grant funding is that much tighter at minority serving institutions, then uh, it, it makes sense that uh, this career focus would be uh, important. Um, so th those are some of the big differences. Uh, Okay, so that uncovers, you know, a pretty big discrepancy of, you know, that 45% um, versus 76% participation in grant reviews. I'm wondering, did you see any differences, um, you know, in that number across, 
you know, the different types of minority serving institutions? Yeah, no, actually, that's surprising. We, we didn't find any differences uh, in levels of participation um, uh, across the different uh, uh, types of, of minority serving institutions. So there were no statistical differences between, um, you know, HBCUs and HSIs, for instance. But uh, that also could be the, the size of our sample. There might be some power issues there. Uh, so it would be much It'd be very interesting to to have a much larger survey that uh, uh, had a much bigger sample to to play with. Okay, so moving back to that sort of headline discrepancy, um, and the fact in particular that you know the reason people cited for not participating in grant review was not being invited. You know, what would you attribute that to? Is that a function of you know informal networks? Uh, you know, not including these people? Are we looking at bias? You know, do you really have an idea of you know kind of what might underlie uh, you know that? discrepancy in invitation. Right. Uh, so yeah, I, th I think um, that's one of the reasons that we asked about um, potential barriers to participation. And um, there were uh, a lot of, uh, we also, in addition to asking people very specific questions with like kind of forced choice answers, like yes or no, or, or a multiple choice uh, response, we also had open text uh, um, as part of this survey. And so we were able to gather a lot of quotes so just to kind of give you a sense of what some of the respondents thought, I mean, one respondent mentioned, it seems like you have to be a member of some club to get invited to participate. Although I'm a successful PI on several well-funded government and foundation grants over my 34 years, I was invited only once to serve on an external grant review panel. So I think that's, that's fairly telling about uh, invitation. Um, I think uh, simply just not being invited is, is uh, an important one. Uh, but there were other uh, reasons as well that, that respondents gave. Um, as you mentioned, kind of a, there's a, a perceived or a perception of, of a lack of networking or, or, or a, a knowledge of the general funding system that prevented uh, these scientists from at least perceiving that they've been seen by research funders. Um, uh, I know someone I think said, I'm not even sure how to go about um, getting on a review panel. Um, so those are uh, some important uh, reasons. I think um, another one that's, that's uh, I think, probably specific to minority-serving institutions uh, to, to a degree is lack of time. Uh, granted, you know, everyone is, is pressed for time everywhere, and, and scientists are busy everywhere. But um, uh, several studies previously about grant submission have also uh, focused on this lack of time. And a lot of the comments that uh, have come up from our survey and from, from other surveys in the literature, like I say, about grant submission, uh, specifically talk about high teaching loads, uh, administrative and service duties uh, that are kind of rolled into a part of being a faculty member at an MSI. And so this, those are things that uh, can contribute to the time barrier. And what kind of feeds that, you know, um extra workload, that extra teaching load, is that a function itself of the, you know, uh, discrepancies in funding that we also see in other places? I think there's a bit of a, like I say, a feedback loop in the sense that, uh, uh, you know, if, if a requirement for participating in a peer review panel is, for instance, getting grant funding and your institution uh, is not getting very high levels of grant funding, then uh, it's likely if you don't get funded, then you're not going to be a reviewer. And if you're not going to be a reviewer, you you may not get exposed to the grant review process and, and have an opportunity to increase your network, to uh, improve your grantsmanship skills, and therefore the cycle kind of continues. So it's 
I think there is a bit of a, a loop there, but there's also uh, probably a lot of potential opportunities for intervention. Is that right? I think I would, I would add, um, just personally being a product of an HBCU, a lot of HBCUs, as, as you were alluding to, James, really put kind of high stakes on teaching, engagement, and training of the students. And therefore, you have a lot of HBCUs that are specifically HBCUs that are putting out STEM-related um, um, bachelor's-level people that actually are liberal arts colleges, right? So they don't have the great environment and infrastructure that a traditionally white institution that might have a liberal arts component, but also has kind of an academic research or medical center um, attached to it. A lot of the HBCUs that are putting out these STEM professionals, maybe they don't have those environments that they are connected to that some of the other TWIs have as well. And so now you have to think about the professors are now at this institution that puts this high level of importance on training and mentorship um, and teaching. And so the professors also don't have the infrastructure or the environment. Mm -hmm. And it goes back into the feedback loop that I think Steve was trying to mention. So you have these professors at these liberal arts colleges that might have a desire to come out and do research, but they don't have the environment, they don't have the resources. The professors have to go and make these collaborations and networks uh, and come up with a way to engage and get money and be able to do research and find the way to do that. And a lot of that comes in with being on a peer review panel, right? So you get to see what other people are doing, you get to make networks and collaborations that could ultimately give a professor at a small HBCU liberal arts focused college a connection with a counterpart that might be five miles away with the research infrastructure that the students and the professor could take advantage of. So I do think it's a feedback loop that a lot of the professors that are focused on training and teaching and kind of the hallmarks of what like a lot of the historically black colleges and universities look at um, how they dig themselves a space to be able to move out and do those other things. But I think I would be remiss to say, like, I don't want all the HBCU people <laughs> to come and find me. There are a lot of historically black colleges and universities that are doing an amazing job of building their research infrastructure. And so I think the Morehouse School of Medicine and the Howards and the Florida A&M's and, you know, the North Carolina A&T's, like a lot of the larger universities um, that are building out that infrastructure, they still need to get money for funding. Um, and they still have to set themselves apart as a place that's doing solid research in addition to training and teaching and mentoring those students. So I think that there's a lot that happens there. And if I could add too, you know, I think, uh, um, Again, the the results of the survey show that uh, while people are not participating as high in in as high levels as uh, uh, scientists from traditionally white institutes, they are very interested. There's high levels of interest, and uh, you could say, well, maybe they're not submitting grants uh, at the same rate. But in fact, uh, we found almost very similar levels of of a. Uh, 
uh, of our respondents uh, submitting grants uh, at some similar levels to our previous survey. So the this sample population compared to our other population um, is a uh, is very similar in terms of grant submission, at least in terms of uh, the number of grants that they submit, but um, uh, but they're not getting invited to peer review panels. So it's it's not that people are not trying; they are, but uh, uh, they're not being invited. So that's I think one important point. Okay, so one thing I've noticed, you know, throughout this conversation and in reading the article, um, which I of course encourage everyone to read, is that we frequently talk about feedback loops. Um, and I would draw everyone's attention. You know, I think the article is uh, free to view. Uh, go ahead and you know, I hope our listeners will open up Figure Five um, right now, uh, because it's sort of you know an, an illustration of um, you know that feedback loop, the the deleterious one in which um, you know it's it's it the uh, you know the the seats at the table kind of get closed off, and there's uh, not a lot of room to um, you know, to get in. Uh, but I'm wondering then about, you know, what kind of interventions, um, you know, could be performed uh, since we, you know, recognize the problem, we, um, you know, understand that the, you know, the funding discrepancies are, are relevant and uh, a big problem. Um, how do we work toward ameliorating that? How do we, you know, increase participation in, you know, grant review um, from researchers at minority serving institutions? I mean, I, I would say there's a couple kind of key areas that, that should be focused on. But the first one is, is probably the simplest, which is that there just needs to be more outreach from funding agencies uh, to recruit scientists from minority serving institutions to participate in peer review. I think that's a, um, and that should be something where maybe they should, um, you know, consider a more inclusive eligibility to review grants and, and as well as just being more proactive in, in, in the inclusivity of the recruitment. Um, so I think that's a, that's a certainly a big starting point. Um, but another point of intervention, um, researchers, research funders can work with um, minority serving institutions to kind of uh, uh, relax policies and practices that are restrictive um, for MSIs with fewer resources, uh, helping to kind of incentivize um, involvement in grant submission that several people have mentioned uh, in the survey that, uh, uh, you know, uh, there's a culture that's uh, uh, not necessarily set up to support grant submission, which is just adds an extra barrier to, um, uh, to trying to participate. Um, and then finally, I think uh, networks just in general are, are very important, uh, improving access to uh, collaborative networks, to publishing networks, to funding networks, and that requires outreach uh, on a variety of different levels at an institutional and agency level and also an individual level. Okay, so it's, it sounds like there are some, you know, interventions that could be performed at various points, you know, in, in those feedback loops to, um, you know, potentially improve things. Um, I'm wondering now, you know, what are you looking at next for your research in the space? You know, are, what are the unanswered questions that, you know, kind of might be interesting to think about, um, you know, in the future and in, in looking toward, you know, kind of ameliorating some of these troubles? I think, uh, I mean, one thing certainly is to kind of examine some, some of these networks and to look at um, maybe in a proactive way how, how to improve some of them and, and to kind of measure uh, the changes that we see along the way. Um, I think uh, examining the power of these networks to shape a more equitable um, landscape in, in research uh, would be uh, interesting um, because there's a lot of evidence that uh, um, improvements in diversity often lead to innovation, uh, which benefits everyone. So 
I, I guess I could add just because uh, Steve and I have lots and lots of conversations about um, how we can look at kind of the diversity initiatives at AIBS and, and allow some of the research that we do to uncover some some equitable equity issues. So we've we've often talked about um, whether we should investigate the partition participation rate on and or barriers to participation in peer review, um, the difference in underrepresented minorities um, at traditional white institutions versus underrepresented minorities in, um, at, in minority serving institutions. Is there a difference there? Um, because as we noticed in this, this exact um, research project that we did, we really tried to dig deep into just faculty members at minority serving institutions. But as we mentioned earlier, there's a great subset of African-American scientists that were trained at uh, minority institutions, specifically at HBCUs that are now out in the, in the majority world doing science. And is there a difference there? Are there barriers there? Because the diversity still isn't there regardless of whether they're from traditional white institutions or from minority serving institutions. So I do think that's an area that we really could dig a little deeper into. Um, and then, I mean, we've had so many conversations that really go outside of peer review, but I do think another thing that we've thought about or have talked about is kind of considering the metrics for kind of promotion and tenure um, at minority serving institutions versus at traditional white institutions and how that could play a role in the diversity of the panels because how do minority serving institutions actually promote their research assistant professors to assistant professors to full professorship? What are those metrics? Are they teaching um, and mentoring or are they, are, is it research funding? So are we able to look at those kind of barriers as well? Because as scientific administrators, often the scientific administrators are looking to invite scientists to these panels that have professorships or associate professorships. And so is there a difference in the way that minority serving institutions are promoting their professors? Um, versus the way that traditional white institutions are promoting their professors. And does that play a role in how scientific administrators are looking to invite people to sit on panels as well, just based on what their, what their promotional title is? So I think we have lots of ways in which we can continue to dig deeper um, into barriers for peer review and the metrics um, that associate with diversity of peer review panels as well. So. We could talk about that forever, but I think those are two additional things that Steve and I have talked about that I do think is very interesting for AIBS to look into. That's great, and we'll certainly look forward to hearing more. And um, you know, hopefully, you know, some more in the pages of Bioscience too. I should mention that this was, you know, kind of particularly fun because uh, I'm getting to talk to people who you know, I talk to from time to time because we work at uh, we all work for AIBS, um, and it's it's been great fun to have you know the article in Bioscience as well. Um, so thank you all very very much for joining me today. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you, James. It was great. Thank you, thank you James. James. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.